people to see the work that modern day apostles are doing in the kingdom. Every true Christian is sent. It's just a matter of where. Dr. Rex Keener, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do this. This is the first of a series that I'm calling Apostle Talk. And the whole point of this is that I want people to see mm. the work that modern day apostles are doing uh, in the kingdom. And by that, the definition of apostle, uh, the biblical perspective of it is simply anybody who's sent out. Now, I mean, you can go and you have the 12 apostles, and I'm not saying that you are one of them, but, but there are people that I want to sit down with and have a cup of coffee and learn how they got started, yeah. etc. Now, you and I are going to have a conversation, and we're going to talk about that, but there's two big points that for those people that are watching that we're going to hit on, and those two big points that I specifically want to talk to you about are what are the challenges that you as the head pastor of Grace Fellowship Church here in the Capital District, mm -hmm. what are the greatest challenges that you see facing the church? Mm -hmm. Big picture church, God's church, Christ's church. Then also another conversation, uh, it, it, it seems to be happening more and more frequently that you see these figures that are, in, uh, that are lead pastors yeah. of mega churches that are falling from grace, where for whatever reason, um, and it makes the news, whether it's a, a very successful podcast series of the rise right. and fall, or it's a TV series. Yeah. So I wanna talk about that. Mm. Um, but first of all, thank you. <laughs> it is such an honor, Dave. I appreciated our friendship for many years now, and to be able to sit and talk about the most important thing in the world, Amen. The kingdom of God yeah. and God's people and what God is up to in the world. There's nothing better than that. And thanks for the great coffee, too. Absolutely. As a uh, coffee connoisseur <laughs> yourself, uh, I, I made sure to uh, roast you a good uh, uh, French press. Hey, let me just start by saying I appreciate the whole idea here of exploring people who are sent by God. You know, as a first-year Greek student, one of the first words you run into is apostello, mm. which means I send. And it's one of those uh, early words you learn because it's, it's kind of a common idea in the Bible. Uh, and I'm glad you said, we're not talking about, you know, like the 12 apostles yeah. who had that sort of early apostolic authority because that would make a lot of people really nervous, and it yes, ought to. Yes. Uh, so we're not talking about authority to write scripture or create new revelation from God in that sense. No. But I like to say it like this. Every true Christian is sent. Amen. It's just a matter of where. My hope in doing these is that uh, people who watch them will get inspired mm. by hearing the stories, the testimonies of other people. Um, and, and you are a traditional role being the head pastor of a church. A lot of people, when they think of going into ministry, they think of your role. Yeah. Uh, and what I hope to show through this series is, is that, there is, that the, the vocation within God's realm is as vast as it is in the secular world. Mm. And there's so many things out there that people can do. So yes. I want to hear your story, your story of how you got into ministry. Now, you're from Kentucky? 
No. Actually, Tennessee. Tennessee, excuse so, me. Uh, I grew up in the South, in the Southern states in yeah. the US. Tennessee was my home. I grew up on a cotton farm. So a uh, very rural area. We yeah. had a little dirt road called Keener Road, believe it or not. <laughs> and so I grew up uh, in a family of, I was one of seven siblings. Where are you in that lineup? I'm the youngest. The youngest, so, okay. Yeah. Cheers to being the youngest. Thank you. Thank We're the you. best. So Save the best for last. I believe that my mom and dad had probably learned a lot of lessons by parenting six uh, of my siblings, yeah. three brothers, three sisters I have. Yeah. And uh, I think I probably got the best of their years. I think I did, the best wisdom they had gleaned. But it was a simple way to grow up, a very yeah. um, hard way in the sense that we didn't have a lot of frills and extras yeah. or yeah. pleasures or uh, I didn't have any clothing that had been bought for me until I was about 13 years old. Well, the youngest. It was all passed yes, down. absolutely. Passed down. So that, that's the kind of life I grew up in. Did Not, you grow up in the church? Um, my mother was a Christian. My father and most of my siblings were not Christians. Okay. But my mother took me to church uh, faithfully from yeah. the time I was very little. Yeah. So I heard the gospel preached. Yeah. I came to faith in Christ at the age of 13. Okay. In fact, just recently I celebrated my 48th spiritual birthday last Thursday, uh, 48 uh, years old in spiritual years. That's awesome. Um, that's impressive. So it was June the 16th, 1974. It was a Father's Day. And that's when I mark my coming to faith in Christ. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was at work long before that, yeah. changing me, teaching me, convicting me, showing me the way, removing the blindness, and so on. But that, that was the start. So when did you realize that you wanted, when did you feel the call, God's call on you more than uh, to rather than be a, a cotton farmer and follow the family yeah. thing, but to go into ministry? Dave, for me, it was almost immediate. Okay. And uh, I've, I didn't know anything but my own experience, of course, at yeah. that time. I have found out since then that my experience apparently is fairly rare, uh, at least when I was in college and seminary with you know, all my colleagues and fellow students. No one had really had a call exactly the way I did, so my sense is it was fairly unusual. Okay. But I knew almost immediately that I was called to be a preacher, as strange as that may sound. So, I was afraid to tell anybody until I was 14, okay. but I had known for about a year that God really wanted me to be a preacher. That's, again, pretty unusual because, again, my dad was not a man of faith, Yeah. none of my brothers were, yeah. um, and I just didn't have a lot of people in my life that I looked up to who were people of faith other than my mom. Was there an element of fear of what they might think in rejecting you or, or because they, they aren't people of faith that for that year where you, you held it in, where you, you felt mm -hmm. that call, but you were afraid of what others might think? I know that fear is a big motivator for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and it was huge for me. Okay. I was very afraid of being laughed at, scoffed at. Most of the jokes I heard were, were somehow poking fun at preachers or yeah. people of faith. Yeah. I just wasn't around a lot of circles where Christianity was esteemed and respected. Yeah. So I was very scared okay. of what this would mean for me. Yeah. So I finally, God gave me the courage at the age of 14. Um, we actually had a guest preacher uh, one Sunday night and uh, he's, 
he said, um, well, actually it was, no, it was through the week because we were having a series of what we called revival meetings. Yeah, yeah. And um, he said, I believe there's someone here that God is calling into ministry. <laughs> and I, I was melting in my seat like, wait a minute, how does he know this? Yeah. And uh, he, he went on in that vein and uh, it was that night that I, I came forward at the end of the sermon and let my church know yeah. that God was indeed calling me to preach. And I, I, I had no idea what that would mean. Yeah. We had a tradition, everybody came around and shook my hand and nice. rejoiced. Yeah. Um, but here's the weird thing. The preacher, the pastor of yeah. the church, yeah. Gum Springs Baptist Church, came Gum over Springs. that evening, that evening to my home. We only lived about a mile away. Yeah. And he asked me if I would preach that Sunday. At 14? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> all you needed, Dave, was a pulse and a willing heart. Sink or swim. You, you didn't need any education. You didn't, didn't need formal training. Yeah. Just a willingness. And I, I was scared. I turned him down. And uh, I felt so guilty about that. Like, you know, the enemy is saying to me, oh, here you are, you say you're called to preach and you won't even take the opportunity. And, it, and uh, I felt guilty. Uh, but some months later, they ask again. Yeah. And at the age of 15, I preached my first sermon. So I got a nice early start yeah, in you ministry. Did. And I'm thankful for that. I love the fact that God always gives us more opportunities. You know, like you'll, you'll see a situation happen and you'll feel the prompting. And so yeah. often, I, this is not what happened to you, it's happened to me, I think it's mm. happened to every Christian, is, is that you see a situation, you feel a prompting and you ignore it. Yeah. And, you know, d depending on how you're wired, yeah. you, you may beat yourself up about that or, or feel all kinds of emotions around that. But thankfully, God is so gracious and patient and long-suffering with us and he does give us great opportunities the challenge is is the next time the opportunity comes is the courage it takes to to stand out and yeah. you feel the butterflies you always feel the butterflies you know the spirits talking to you yeah but it's like there's so many excuses you can come up with so uh we could go down that tangent oh, yeah. for a while but i want to go from your first message at 15 to yeah. to seminary briefly and then yeah. how on earth did you yeah. come to the Capital District? I mean, you're down in yeah. southern, warm uh, uh, <laughs> Louisiana. Was it? it was Louisiana, right? Well, actually, actually, I went to seminary. I went to seminary in Kentucky. So okay. Here's, here's a snapshot. Uh, and again, I I would actually use the word miraculous to describe my story. It's just a, a story of the sovereignty of God guiding a very unlikely person. Okay. I I sometimes say God plucked me out of a cotton field. Because we, we literally pick cotton by yeah. hand. Yeah. Uh, and he called me into ministry, and I had no idea what that would mean. I, I thought it would be bivocational because our pastors were bivocational. Yeah. They had a full time job, yep. but they worked at least 40 hours a week, and then they just kind of pastored the church yeah. as they were able. And I think across the globe, that is, is more, more the situation than not. I think so. I think yeah. so. So no one in my family had ever gone to college. So I, did, I didn't know what that world was about. Wow. Uh, my father had a sixth grade education. My mother had gone through the seventh grade. My oldest brother had gone through the eighth grade. I had a brother who dropped out in high school in the 10th grade. So we weren't an educational family. Yeah. So uh, I went to college 
and didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what a semester was, yeah. believe it or not. I kept hearing that word and what is semester? <laughs> I, I, that word's never been used around our home. Yeah. So I went to college in East Tennessee, Carson Newman College. Then I found out about this thing called seminary. Yeah. And I thought, well, I guess I need to go to seminary then because I'm hearing that's really important. Yeah. So then I went to Louisville, Kentucky, and I was um, uh, fortunate enough uh, to, be, to get a preaching scholarship. It's called the Presidential Preaching Scholarship, nice. which they awarded, which paid for an entire year nice. of, of seminary education. And that was at Southern Baptist? Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Or as the locals say, Louisville. 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 <laughs> you know the locals and you know when you're not a local. So absolutely critical. When did Debbie enter the picture? Well, um, was she in Louisville? She was not. I didn't meet Deb until years after that. Okay, so I'm jumping ahead. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's all cool. Okay. Uh, we don't need to go in a linear fashion here, but uh, I graduated at the age of 24 okay. with an MDiv degree. Yep. Master of Divinity. Doesn't that sound really stained glass? Well, a and master especially, of divinity. especially in a family where no one had done anything other than graduate high school. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, profound. You know, again, and I'm just a story of grace. That's yeah. my life is just grace, grace, grace. All my family, by the way, all my siblings are still alive. They all still live in Leoma or Lawrenceburg down in that okay. area. Okay. And um, I'm a thousand miles away. So my, my path in life has been pretty different. But I finished seminary and I had an opportunity to work for the Billy Graham team at that time. Right. So that's where the trajectory of my life really, really went in a different direction. I thought I would start a church in Louisville okay. at the time. Okay. Uh, that was my plan. Yeah. I was already looking at places where I could start, and yeah. I had a little core of people that yeah. wanted to start a church. But I, I, I really believed God wanted me to take this Graham opportunity, and my first assignment was in Europe, in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. So that was my first trip to Europe. And I kind of got an international exposure yeah. to, the, to the church yeah. at that point. We had an international conference for itinerant evangelists called Amsterdam 86. Okay. And um, we had about 10,000 uh, church leaders, evangelists, wow. pastors from all over the world. At that time, it represented 185 different nations. We had another one, by the way, in the year 2000 that I was privileged to go back and work in. Yeah. This is after Grace was already yeah, started and everything. Yeah. And that, that also set a record as the most multinational event in history. What a foundation. So what, a, what a cool thing yeah. just to meet these leaders from around the world. And I felt like God gave me a sort of taste okay. of what the kingdom of God is like and some of his work around the world. After that, I worked in Billy Graham Crusades. Okay, traveling all over U.S.? Just traveling or? all over the U.S. Yeah. and Canada. And um, I also did some ministry in the Philippines and, and Mexico and other, other countries, uh, but mostly in the U.S. Okay. We would go into a major city and stay there for a, a year or so. Oh, wow. And uh, prepare for an evangelistic The prep uh, was a year. Often it was a year, even more. Wow. Uh, we would usually have uh, two or three years of a ramp going up to that, but it was mostly just lo local leaders getting yeah. ready. But yeah. we would have a staff in place for 
at least six months, but often a year or more. Well, no doubt that uh, resulted in greater impact to be invested in the did. community. Yeah, it's, of course. It was very much a grassroots movement. Yeah. Um, so here's where Debbie comes in. Okay. Uh, I was uh, in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. And then I worked in a Rochester crusade. And then guess which city is next? Syracuse. Mm -hmm. So Deb and her family were living in the Syracuse area of ah. upstate New York. And I was actually teaching in her church, again, in a class getting ready for the crusade. Um, and that's when I first saw my future wife. And uh, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. How many years has it been? Well, this year, this June, in just a few days, June 30th, we will have been married for 32 years. <laughs> so That's awesome. Give me a fist pop, yes. man. That's 32 great. amazing years. So Good for you. God has Praise been God. really, really gracious in my journey. And I know that just sounds like, you know, pious platitudes, but Dave, for me, that is so real and so meaningful. I have no idea where my life would be if God had not sent me. Sent me. Yeah. So this why this apostle talk stuff, it's gritty, it's real. Yeah. And it's not just for people who are called pastor. That, that is one big point that yeah. I want to get, is that so many people who go to church, um, they see the only option of uh, going into ministry is, as having a paycheck mm. from a church. Mm which uh, that is an option, but there's so much yeah. more that, that's available out there. And that, that is the point. But so what I want to hit on is how did you get to starting up Grace? And then we'll hit our, our two yeah. subjects. Well, I'll, I'll be very brief. Um, I came to Albany yeah. uh, as a single young man. I had met Debbie in Syracuse and we, we dated long distance. Okay. I would travel there to her home where she lived with her family. And she would occasionally come here and visit me and stay with friends that I had. Were you working with Billy Graham I Association was. At I was the time? working on a crusade, in Albany. which happened in 1990 okay. in Albany. Okay, so uh, I was sort of at a crossroads in my life. Yeah. I loved my work. Yeah. But there it had is, to have been, sorry to interrupt, it had to have been exhausting. I mean, to, it was. But, but here's the difference uh, it was very exhausting because you ran hard, worked long yeah. hours, but you got rest and you got breaks. Yeah. So after every crusade, we would get a significant break. So we would really slow down, take a few weeks off, move to the next city, and then kind of slowly get ramped up again. So yeah. that's the big difference between that and local church ministry. Oh, it never stops, does it? you typically don't have breaks, yeah. you know. Unless you intentionally Unless you take a sabbatical them. or something like that, yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm in Albany. Uh, Debbie and I have since then gotten engaged. Okay. And we have planned our wedding, and our wedding was supposed to happen just after the crusade, so everything would be kind of calm. Yeah. But the crusade got postponed, and so you shooting a lot of weddings, you know how this is. Once those invitations are sent out and everything's planned and booked, you can't it's change that change easily, it. it's right? It's hard to change it, yes. So we, our wedding then was going to happen just before the crusade started. Oh my gosh. So I had, I had to change a lot of things with when I did briefings with our volunteers. Yeah. We got married June 30th, and the crusade started, I think it was July 7th or 8th. Yes, yeah, so and, I'm uh, guessing you didn't take a honeymoon then. We actually did, but I, I missed the first day of the crusade. I got permission to do that, had everything covered, 
Came back though, wow, what a way to come back and yeah, get started ready in married to go. life. Yeah. Right in the middle of a very hectic crusade. So what then? Uh, so after that, yeah. uh, I was uh, called to go on to the next city, which was gonna be on the West Coast. Okay. It was gonna be in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And uh, I faced a crossroads. Yeah. Am I gonna continue in this life where I'm flying a lot, moving around a lot, it's not gonna be good for a new marriage. Yeah, you're starting a family. So that's the, the practical domestic yep. reason, yep. but the, the sole reason is that I felt I'm primarily called to be a preacher, yeah. not a person who sets up meetings. Yep. Um, I loved it, I loved so much of what went with it. I certainly preached a lot, Yeah. but I felt God wanted me to grow with one community. Relationship. So, yeah. Uh, a church locally, uh, Pineview Community Church yeah. is the church. It's still around. Yeah. Uh, they offered me a job, and I'll. There's so many facets to that, but I stayed for two years. Okay. At Pineview Community Church, some of the most wonderful Christian people I've ever met were there. A great church, and uh, but toward the end of that, I felt that God was calling me to move on. Yeah. You know. When you're, when you're called by God, you always gotta be willing to be mobile. Mm. And I respect people who have long tenure at a place. Yeah, I respect that. I think that's generally uh, what God wants us to do, to flourish where we are. Yeah. But he does call us to move at times. And yeah. So I, I left Pineview without a job. I didn't know what I was gonna do next. Yeah, and, and two years um, married. Now, uh, any kids had come at this point? Deb was just pregnant with our first child, Allie. Yeah. And so uh, she was pregnant. I was going to have no job. We had a one-bedroom apartment over in Latham and no money coming in. Perfect time so, to start a wonderful. church. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the wonderful. start of a, a great story where God uh, uh, clearly provides. God brought four uh, guys to me in a two-week period, yeah. and some of them didn't even know each other. Yeah, and they all wanted to take me out to lunch just to see, hey, what are you doing now, man? I, yeah. I hear that you've left your job, uh, you're in transition. Yeah, and they all, at the end of the conversation, almost as an afterthought, threw in, and by the way, hey, for whatever it's worth, I just feel the Holy Spirit saying to me, if you would ever want to start a church in the area, just want you to know. My wife and I would love to be a part of it. We we just believe that might be something God would be in. After the, the the first time was probably shock. After the fourth time, was it like? And I would go I would go home and tell Debbie. Yeah. And we're like, what is God doing? I mean, clearly should telling we you. consider that? Because I was looking at other options. Well, especially with a um, baby on the way, you want yeah. a steady paycheck. I had to to have an income. Yeah. Right? I, if Deb were here, she would tell you that I said to her. Look, hun, we're not going to go hungry. I'll go get a job flipping hamburgers. I'll do whatever I have to do. Yeah. We're going to have food to eat. We're going to have shelter. We're going to be fine. Yeah. But we need to we need to listen to God's counsel here and sort the, this out. So these four guys, I finally called them together and said, I don't know if you all know what you've all said, but each of you has essentially said the same thing and you said that the Holy Spirit was prompting you. Yeah. That maybe God wanted us to start a church. I said, but this is such an important deal. I dare not make a move like this unless we pray. So we fasted for three days and prayed. We went away to 
uh, a house that one of them had yeah. um, uh, up, up on a lake. And we prayed for three days. We fasted. We got very grumpy, <laughs> and, as you do when you don't eat. Yeah. And we talked about what would it look like yeah. if God is in this, we, we want some confirmation. Yeah. Because we've all got busy lives and you need a job, Keener, and this better be God or we dare not do this. I love the fact that you started with prayer and fasting. And, it, and that's a perfect example of a good use for it, but continue. It was, it was brutal. It, it was wrenching. It yeah. was soul searching. But, but at it the end of it, validating, right? It was. Yeah. At the end of it, we came out saying, we do believe this is God's guidance. Yeah. We do believe the time is now. And so we set about a five month um, runway yeah. to kind of get ready. I, none of us had ever started a church. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I had done quite a bit of preaching, but I had never started a church. So, totally different thing. Um, that's how Grace got started. So we set a date five months into the future. Yeah. And Grace started uh, on March the 21st, 1993. There you go. So. So how many years are we at now? I could do the math, but... Yeah, well, next year in March will be 30 years. Oh, that's awesome. So 30 years. So I, I love being at one place that long. Uh, so for those people who are watching that aren't familiar in the local area, uh, that church started 30 years ago, roughly, uh, and was just four families, five families, I guess. Counting us, yeah, counting us. Where is it at now? Well, uh, God has been incredibly gracious in what he's done. See, here's the deal you've got to know. You never want to judge or evaluate or yes. measure God's work by visible fruit. Hope everybody's clear with that. Never, ever, ever measure God's work by visible fruit alone. You're looking alone. at the standards of man. Okay. Right? It, exactly. Because God's work is often unseen. It's beneath the radar, you have it's no in the idea. shadows. It, God's working in ways that we have no comprehension yeah. of. And some of the most godly people in history had very little visible fruit, okay? Yeah. But it's always humanly encouraging when you have some visible fruit. That's yeah. always humanly encouraging. We, we tend to love that. And I love that you uh, uh, paused to make that point. I asked a question that values the success of a church based simply on how many people are yeah. sitting in the seats. Yeah. And that is what uh, the world puts on it as far as God moving or God not moving. But you are absolutely correct that, that yeah, continue. So to, I mean, today we, we have three different campuses that we call Grace. One is in Saratoga, one is in Half Moon, one is in the Latham Water Valley area. And if you went out on the streets and did a survey, you'd probably find at least several thousand people who would say, oh, Grace is my home church. Yeah. Now today, and this may get to something we'll touch on later. Perfect. Today, you gotta know what that means because there are many people today who would call a place their church, but they hardly ever show up. Yeah, Christers, they watch on. <laughs> they watch online, perhaps. Yep. They may even they may even be robust givers. Okay. They may be involved. They may pray with fervency. They may they may even represent Jesus pretty well in a lot of situations. But as far as being involved in fellowship, that's an ingredient that has really been damaged with the pandemic. 
Well, let's, so. let's transition to that. that. That is a perfect transition to this question of what do you feel is, the, from your perspective, with all the background that we've talked about, is the greatest challenge that is facing the church today? Dave, you have to ask the question of all questions, man. Now, this is my take on that. I, yeah, and that's what we want to hear is I, you have the is, background. You have my take. Yeah. I, I believe the greatest challenge facing the church of the living God today is the battle to maintain the truth and the integrity of the gospel. What the gospel is yeah. in its totality and to, to keep that intact. Unpack that for me. Well, in the little book called Jude, toward the back of our Bibles, yeah. Uh, Jude there, who was an early uh, apostle, beloved, he says, I was writing to you that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Yeah. The word faith is used in lots of different ways in yeah. the New Testament. But there in Jude verse 3, the word faith is used as that corpus, that body of truth that makes up what Christianity is. Yeah. The beliefs that are non-negotiable for the faith. Essentials. You've got to contend for that, he says. So that's what we're talking about. I believe that's the biggest challenge in front of us. And here's why that's a challenge. Yeah. Because the gospel, we call it good news, and that's literally what the word means. And it's a great word. It's an appropriate word. But the gospel doesn't start with good news. It starts with very humbling, very challenging sort of bad news yeah we're all sinners you're all a sinner short. yeah you're headed toward eternal destruction in hell you're going to hell you're separated from god yeah and you cannot even save yourself it doesn't now that uh, that doesn't sound like good news dave yeah. so uh, people aren't crazy about the gospel in fact unless the holy spirit is stirring someone and moving someone they think it's not to embrace the gospel yeah. and respond to the gospel it will be foolishness that's essentially what paul says in first corinthians yeah. one yeah our message is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved he says it's the power of god and with the distractions so. and everything that's going on in the world uh to present a message that says that you're broken uh, is not palatable. That is not the message that itching ears want to hear. No. It's not the message that our prideful human heart wants to hear. We want to hear a message that says, look, you've got everything you need. You're enough. You're In and of yourself, you're enough. Speak your truth. Hey, protect your peace. Wh whatever works for you is good. These are all messages that people receive every day. That are all over. Yeah. Podcasts, websites, TV shows, you know, talk shows, I mean, movies. Dev and I were watching a movie last night and we were teasing each other because one of the lines in it was, protect your truth. Now, and in that context, the way it was being used was, hey, be selfish. You need to do whatever makes you feel good. Yeah. Protect your truth. And, we, and I, we teased each other the rest of the evening about, now protect your truth, now. <laughs> protect your peace now. Well, the, the world we live in right now says that uh, we need to embrace everyone's truth, whatever it is. So long as your truth doesn't inhibit my truth, it's fine. We need to embrace everything. 
And philosophically, that just doesn't work. I love the coexist sticker because it's yeah. just, it just makes me laugh because not one religion that's on it would agree that the other is also true. Exactly. So, you know, there, there, is, uh, there is the truth yeah. and uh, there is something that is not true. There are many things that are not true. So I believe that's the biggest challenge. And I'm going to go ahead and, and just use a phrase here that's commonly used. Yeah. I believe that it's not just other religions, other worldviews and thoughts, other philosophies out there that are the biggest threat yeah. to Christianity being contended for. I believe the biggest threat right now is what is called progressive Christianity. Mm. And here's why I would call it the biggest threat. Yeah. Because it's the most subtle threat. And it looks appealing. There is a movement, and uh, it, you know, many churches would call themselves progressive churches. Yeah. And I, I, by the way, if somebody has that name in their church name and they don't mean what I'm talking about, God bless you. If that means you're progressive in your methodology or in the way you're trying to get Christ out there, God bless you. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, we're progressive in our methodology. I hope we are at least. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking about a movement that is essentially still using Christian nomenclature, words, phrases, Yep. but they're redefining what those mean. For instance, still talk about the resurrection of Jesus, but what you really mean when you say that is, well, he was raised in their hearts. They, they, they still had hope. They stormed out of that upper room saying, let's not let him die. Oh, we, we know he died. We know he's still dead. We, God knows, you know, what a tragedy. But he really inspired us. So Dave, let's go out and live like he would have lived. And they turned the world upside down. Well, you and I know that's bogus. It's taking away the whole point, the resurrection, the, the power of the whole message. As Paul poignantly says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile. Yeah. You are still in your sins. And also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Yeah. He says it all hangs on the resurrection. And by him, with him, that means the bodily resurrection of Jesus. I could go on and on, but they'll still talk about Jesus' death. But what they mean is, what a great moral example. Yeah. No, no, God was good with us already. He, we, Jesus didn't need to die to atone for our sins, blood, that's gross. Come on, let's get beyond that primitive crap. We didn't need that. But what an inspiring moral example his death was on the cross. And we ought to be willing to sacrifice too in order to be nice people, you know, and help those who are hurting a little bit. Well, again, you're still talking about the death of Jesus, but you've completely redefined the meaning of it. Yeah. You've... You've eviscerated, you've cut the heart out of it. Yeah. You know, bottom line, you no longer have the gospel. Dave Bigler, that, in my opinion, is the biggest challenge facing the church today. We've got to know what the gospel is, and we've got to know what the counterfeit looks like. Yeah. We've got to keep on contending for the faith because when we lose the gospel, when we lose the essence of that message, yeah. we've lost it. It's pointless. Game, all, game over. Whole new game is being played. The biggest challenge is, is that the picture that's painted by that progressive system is one of 
uh, prosperity and and uh, that you you could even be in that environment and call yourself a Christian and have someone say, oh, I do believe in Jesus and I oh, do absolutely. go to church and I know I'm saved, but yet the, the system that you're a part of uh, has taken the Bible and picked and, 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 and broken it apart to pick and choose what you follow. And Dave, I can I see why the, that's problematic. The parts that are cherry-picked out of it and, and discarded are the offensive parts. Of course. The offensive parts. Yeah. The, any, anything that would make someone feel kind of uncomfortable or that doesn't seem inclusive or doesn't seem tolerant, those are the parts. And let's face it, Jesus talked about a narrow road. I mean, he was offensive. It's just not real pleasant to yeah. talk about that in our culture today. Yeah. So that's where I'm coming from. That's what I've concluded after decades of ministry now. Yeah. And I, I think that challenge is escalating for yep. the church. I do not believe it's diminishing. I think it's escalating. So uh, for practical sense, for a person who might be watching this right now that questions if they are involved in a church uh, that may be this wolf in sheep's clothing, uh, what are uh, some things that would be direct indicators of that? Well, I, I would I would give careful attention to a couple of things. All right, yeah. when Bible stories are read, all right, I'm assuming the Bible is still being used. Yeah. By the way, because increasingly in progressive churches, the Bible loses its relevance. It's just some and, verses up on the screen. It, and and, it, and essentially, you you essentially move more and more just away from historic Christian roots altogether. And I I'm aware of a number of people who've moved either to Buddhism or just some eclectic smorgasbord that they've created. Wow. Some sort of new age thing they've just made up. But I, I, would, I would look out for things like this. When Bible stories are being read, are they taken as historical events that really happen? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one giveaway right there. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about things in the Bible, are miracles still embraced as miracles, real yeah. miracles? Or are they somehow uh, justified as... Or is it like, yeah, Jesus didn't really multiply the loaves. Everybody had lunches. They just weren't willing to share. And when he brought the little lad up and kind of shamed them, this little boy only has five loaves and two, and he's willing to share his lunch. They sheepishly reached into their cloaks and brought out their bag lunches. And wouldn't you know it, when Everybody they got over ate. their selfishness, there was plenty to eat. And they even had leftovers. Look, look out for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Look out for that because that is a sign that the Bible is ding, being, big word here, apologize for it, demythologized. 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 Yeah. It's kind of the idea, Rudolf Bultmann was the champion of promoting this, uh, a New Testament scholar yep. um, who taught, it's, it's kind of like an onion. Mm. If you've peeled an onion, you know there are layers and layers to that onion, and you can peel layer after layer away and get down to the core of the onion. He said the, the New Testament documents are like that. They are myths. They have layers and layers of fabricated things that, that have been put on them that the church essentially, would never use these terms, made up. Yeah. And it, it's just these accretions that have been added, these additives. And so what we gotta get down to is, what is the core? You got to demyth it. Yeah. 
So that's what I would mean by that big word, demythologize. Now, for the average person, they're going, oh, God, <laughs> what, what is all this? But this is happening all over the world, and it's yeah. happening big time in the Western world. Yeah. And my observation is when someone begins to do that to the Bible, it is a very short period of time until they've chucked the whole thing. Yeah, because here's the deal. If you go across, uh, we could go on a road trip right now and take the whole crew here. And I could show you dozens and dozens of empty, dilapidated former church buildings. Yeah. Now, some of them have been made into community centers, and some of them have been repurposed into nightclubs or yeah. bars Music or, halls. or personal homes, if it was yeah. a small church, whatever. But dozens of them who used to have a vibrant witness for Christ, they preached the gospel. Yeah. But somewhere, they got a leader in who didn't believe the historic biblical Christian gospel. Yeah. And eventually, as that bled out into the pews and into the hearts of the people, eventually thinking people wake up and go, well, he's supposed to be an expert. He's been to seminary. He knows what he's talking about. If what he's saying is really true, what are we doing here? I mean, it essentially boils down to he's saying, be nice people. Be nice people. That's essentially what it boils down to. And so they begin to leave in droves. And of course, they're just being rational. Yeah. Because if the gospel, as it's been delivered historically and biblically, is not true, yeah. we got no message, dude. We got no message. So forget about being sent. There's no sending. There's no reason to be sent. You got nothing to say. Unless the message is uh, uh, to feel good and, and pep talks. I mean, if your goal as a church is to, um, from the outside, look prosperous, if your whole point is to be successful by the man's standard, uh, by mankind's standard, and, and looking on based on the number of seats that you fill, uh, Preach a gospel that is all about, uh, if you want it, you can have it. All you have to do is believe. Name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. You know what I mean? And yeah. so if you want to fill seats, do a five-part series on uh, bringing out the better you. Yeah. That's not and, the gospel. Right. Now, there and, could be a series that could be beneficial, but... It, it, and yeah. And, and, you know, as preachers, as people who proclaim truth, whether you're doing it in a church on Sunday, or whether you're sharing it with your fellow coworker, you know, at lunch. Our job is to make sure the gospel message doesn't get compromised and that biblical truth doesn't get compromised. Now, I hope we're presenting it in as interesting a way as possible. I hope we're not trying to be intentionally dull with it. So we can package it up yes. nicely to try to get a, a buzz going and yeah. create interest and put a hook in people. But if in getting a hook in them, if you bring them in and you don't actually present the real gospel and the real gospel message, you, you are basically adulterating the gospel. Yeah. You're you basically slope. just prostituted the ministry. You're just, I don't know what you're doing, but you're not being a faithful follower of Jesus. So one of the things that uh, jumps into my mind is Acts 17, 11. 
and the Bereans. Yeah. And I would say that that is the call of every single Christian is to whatever you hear, whether it's from Rex Keener uh, or yeah. uh, me if I'm doing a Bible study or in any church, uh, Acts 17, 11, the Berean Jews uh, would search the scriptures after Paul shared with them and search the scriptures to see if what he was saying is true. Daily. I, I would argue, yeah, daily, I would argue that that is one of the indicators. If you uh, are at a church and something is said that causes it to question, wow, it feels like he's uh, taking away the validity of the Bible, grab that Bible verse and read it. And don't read just that Bible verse, but read the whole context of the whole story. Absolutely. And if you see glaring discrepancies, yeah. Might be time to leave that church. And read parallel verses and so on. Yeah. And, and uh, if, if you do find yourself in a church where the gospel is not being faithfully presented, yeah. and where scriptural truth is not being faithfully presented on a regular basis, I, I would say you should seriously search your heart and go, is this the place God wants me to be? Yeah. Wherever that is, and just seek Him on that. Pray on it. Now, can I shift gears here and yeah. talk about what I believe is a closely related second challenge? Let's do it. Are we okay with yeah, that? Yeah, do it. Let's get uh, you some more coffee. I do believe that contending for the truth, the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says in verse 3, I do believe that's number one. But close second, I believe, challenge for the church today. Yeah. So many ways this could be worded, I guess. I, I think it's the sanctification challenge. Hmm. I think it's this challenge of, are we representing Jesus well? Now, this is one, man, we better talk about this with humility. Yeah. Because we all got clay feet, right? We all, we all are utterly works in progress. Yes. Amen? Amen. I mean... Thank God I'm not what I used to be, but the good news is I'm not what I'm going to be. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a process right now. The Bible calls that sanctification. Okay. I believe uh, that one of the biggest challenges of the church today is that many of us have gotten stalled, severely stalled, and, and sidelined in our sanctification process. Okay. And we're not looking much like Jesus. Mm. And again, I'm, I got a big mirror that I'm looking in as I'm talking about it. Because in, anytime, no anytime you you bring this subject up, you better be looking in the mirror. And I, yeah. boy, I am. I, I shudder sometimes to think about how poorly I must have represented Jesus in certain situations and so on. Well, paint it for me. What does it look like? Well, here, here's the thing about real believers. Okay. When the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and He does in every true believer, yeah. it's one of the marks of a Christian. Your yeah. body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He creates a desire in you, according yeah. to Philippians 2.13, to will and to do. Yes. To do God's will, to want to be like Jesus. He creates that desire for godliness. Yeah. Now you need to cooperate with that. Yeah. First Timothy 4 7 says, exercise yourself rather unto godliness, the King James Version. The NIV says, train yourself to be godly. So there's effort on our part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But we cooperate with what the Spirit is doing. And how do we do that? 
we do it through engaging in the spiritual disciplines God has given us. Well, and Those are the as... methods and the means of grace yes. that God has designed that as we engage in them, we become more like Jesus, more Christ-like, more studying godly. The Bible. the Bible is one of them, yeah, Bible intake. Yeah. In all of its forms, hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, med that's all training yourself to be godly. Fellowship. Prayer. Fellowship is yeah. a discipline, believe it or not. Yeah. Have you read uh, Celebration of Discipline? Absolutely. One of my favorite yeah. books, Foster. Amazing book. Love that. And, and, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, those, as far as following those on a day-to-day -day basis, so few do. So, in my, my experience, in, in working, no exaggeration, with thousands of Christians through the years, it seems to me that only a small percentage of Christians really robustly embrace a track of growth. Okay. Okay, a track of growth. Now, now, now you say, well, what, dude, you seem to be worked up about this. What, why would you dare say that that is the second biggest challenge why does it bother you so facing much? the church? What, yeah. Why is that such a big deal? Yeah. Great question. Here's the answer. Because God's reputation is on the line. Mm. If we don't represent Christ, who does? We're supposed to be chips off the old block. This is God's ideal now. He wants people to be able to look at Dave Bigler, Rex Keener, all of our sisters and brothers out there. He wants people to be able to look at us and go, something different. Wow. They look an awful lot like their father. Yeah. Chip off the old block. That's what godliness means. Yeah. That's what Christ-likeness means. That's what holiness means. Those words are essentially used interchangeably in the New Testament, and they're to describe that character yeah. where the moral attributes of God are actually reflected and seen in you and me. Now, well, I, I do that's the goal. That's the goal. So the one thing that I do want to say right now uh, for those people that are watching is, is there isn't an expectation that you are going to be perfect as Christ is perfect, that you cannot attain that, but that you're trying to get there, that you are trying, that the, the Holy Spirit is working in you, as you spoke about, is doing a work in you that never finishes. So it doesn't mean that you have to be perfect you are perfectly forgiven, but that the key sign of a follower of Christ is, is that God is working through them and is radiating out of them. Is that what you're saying? Am I saying that right? I, yeah, again, you know, so many ways you can say it. Yeah. Theologically, we are positionally perfect in Christ, yeah. positionally. Yep. As he looks at us, he sees us through the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to us. This is just good, sound biblical theology, yes. okay? We're robed in the righteousness of Christ, all right? Yeah. So that's the way God sees us positionally, all right? So that is objectively true of us. Yeah. But subjectively, the real life that we're living out day by day, we are far from that, right? Yeah. We're far from that. And so there's where the progress comes in. So what I hear you saying is, is that one of the challenges is that you see, and, and I can see this as well, is that there are many people who um, go to church on Sunday uh, and then go out and live a completely different life uh, Monday through Saturday. 
is that they they put on the 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 jacket, so to speak, of being a Christian for 90 minutes, uh, but they don't actually uh, allow the Spirit to work in them or to work through them. Am I hearing that? Very much so, okay. and, and in a very holistic, total kind of way. Yeah. See, here's, here's what it usually looks like in certain Christian circles. Okay. They get they get this idea that, okay, this Christ-likeness, this holiness, this, this sanctification that we're after, if we just don't smoke, drink, or chew, or run with girls who do, yeah. that's it. Yeah. Okay, so as long as we wrong. don't go dance, as long as we don't wear that kind of clothing, as, well, as long as we don't let our hair grow long, as long as we don't... We need to look it, like this. Our, as long as our, our females look really plain and don't wear a lot of makeup... Yeah. You get this caricature of what it looks like, but your heart could be far away from it. You could toe the line on every one of those things and be the most cruel, unloving person in the world. Yeah, yeah. you're doing it so for the wrong reasons. That's why I reasons. say it's a total thing. It's a holistic thing, Yeah. this Christ-likeness. It's an inside-out job, Yeah. and it should be defined more by the wholesome things we're doing rather than the negative things we're staying away from. Okay. So that's holiness should be defined more by that. The challenge so, is, is that, uh, sorry to interrupt, the challenge is, is that the, when a person becomes a believer, I mean, this was my situation, is, is that you, there's this expectation that you put on yourself that you need to look a certain way. And for me in my story, sorry, uh, for me in my story to uh, try to look perfect is exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting and you will fail. It has to be the inside-out job yes. where, yes, it's from as the Paul heart says, first. I no longer live. Yeah, but Christ who lives through me. But Christ lives in me, and the yeah. life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dave, I, I may sound like a raving lunatic to some uh, folks who might listen to this, but I got to say, this, this is a big problem because here's the deal. Christians have a credibility problem today. Yeah. And you you cited earlier, you know, some of the major moral failures that we've had, some of these implosions of key leaders, and that is incredibly tragic, incredibly tragic. But the bottom line is, it's not just those leaders. I mean, I don't believe that people, by and large, really look at the average professing Christian they know and go, Wow, what an amazing person. Now, thankfully, there are exceptions. Yeah. Thankfully, the most wonderful, godly, sacrificial, loving people I've ever met are Christians. Yeah. That's just been my experience. But we, we somehow need to build communities of faith. And this would be my challenge to my fellow leaders. Yeah. We, we need to go after communities, communities of faith where we're kind of raising the bar of expectation as much as we can and say, and, and we need to lead the way in that, that, by the way. Okay. In the way we steward our own lives mm. in godliness and train ourselves as leaders to be godly. We've got to say, look, Christ expects more of us than this. Mm. Now, again, it's him doing the work, you know, just because we engage in certain disciplines and touch that base doesn't mean we're automatically 
going to become more godly. But if we don't show up for those drills, yeah. if we don't show up at God's gym, so to speak, yes. and engage in these drills, then we're not even posturing ourselves for godliness. He does the work. He's the one who makes us godly. We don't make ourselves godly. We cannot change ourselves, Dave Bigler. Only God can transform a soul. If God's not in it, it's not going to move. Okay. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Cheers. <laughs> well, so before we wrap up, I do want to hit on that. You transitioned to it, and this is our last talking point, but uh, the fall from grace. Uh, it's such a tough subject. And I don't like that term fall from grace because it implies somehow that they've lost grace. Yeah. Because grace can't be lost. Uh, but what can you do Rex Keener as a head pastor of, yeah. by the North standards, a mega church, by the South standards, it's a very small little tiny church, but whatever. Uh, what can you do to make sure that, that you're not on the next headline? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's question. terrifying. I'm sure there's lots of Christians that uh, <clears throat> are curious about that, that they, they fear that, that who will be next? Yeah. And uh, I think it's a question we all ought to be asking ourselves every day. I mean, the Bible instructs us to think that way. Yeah. The Apostle Paul challenged the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful yeah. so that you don't fall. Yeah. So that you don't fall. So he's... He seems to be promoting there a sort of vigilance yeah. about this. Like, yeah. hey, be careful. It's a word to use. Be vigilant about this. Don't just blithely go along thinking, well, oh, that'll never happen to me. That no one's be, exempt from it. That would be arrogant, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, it would be, be stupid, frankly. So, uh, so many angles, I suppose. I, I would first say that I think the best thing we can do to try to ensure that we don't just become the next, you know, Christian casualty, yeah. whatever our place in life is, whether yeah. you're one of those very visible apostles sent ones of Christ or whether you're totally behind the scenes, yeah. okay, is train yourself to be godly. I go right back to 1 Timothy 4, 7, yeah. cooperate with the Spirit's work in your life because here's the deal. The more satisfied you are in God, the more happy, I'm going to use that word intentionally, I okay. know, the more joyful you are in Christ, yeah. the more satisfied you are with your relationship with the living Lord and the Holy Spirit every day in your life, the less likely you're going to be to fall, to go chasing some satisfaction in things that are going to yeah. kill you yeah. and discredit the Lord. That's just the starting point. If you get into the story of most people who do have an implosion, a moral implosion, yes. they weren't really finding satisfaction daily in their experience with God. To break it down, they weren't having regular quiet times that were really robust and meaningful. They weren't really, didn't have a, a burgeoning prayer life and time in the Word. They didn't have robust fellowship with people who are really asking hard questions of them. Yeah. That's what you find. Yeah. Almost in every single case. It makes sense. Okay, so 
it's a, it's a proactive thing. The, that, that would be my first word, and that's what I try to build into my life, by the way. I, I don't have time to go into all the disciplines and all the ways I seek to train myself for godliness. I want to cooperate with the Spirit's work. What I hear you saying, though, is, is that the first and foremost is that no one is exempt from being challenged, that we all are on a walk and a journey, and whether you are um, the lead pastor of a large church or whether you are just simply leading your family, uh, the uh, moral failure can happen to all of us. And so the best way, if I'm hearing this correctly, yeah. to um, build up your armor, so to speak, is to get back to those same disciplines of prayer, of studying the Bible, of being involved in fellowship. Um, now, I'm guessing you're going to hit on this, but one of the elements that is critical to me in my life uh, is accountability, mm. is that I must always have someone that is going to call me out. And especially, especially for me, as I'm doing these Bible studies and these talks, I need solid individuals in my life who are not afraid to say, Dave, you might have stepped out of uh, line here. Uh, what is your biblical basis for this statement that you made or, or whatever it might be? Now, that's something for me personally that I think is critical for me maintaining my walk is to have brothers that will hold me accountable. I'm all for accountability because I certainly believe that's a biblical thing and it's all a part of what fellowship is meant to be. And, uh, you know, Paul says in Galatians 6, he says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Yeah. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Yeah. So there's a spirit of humility I'm hearing in that, that, yeah, you confront, you go to the person, you restore, but you do it with a humble, vigilant spirit, realizing there but for the grace of God go, go I. Yeah. So I'm, I'm all into accountability, but I, I want to nuance it a little okay. bit. Okay, okay. Because I, I think in some ways accountability has been either overplayed, overstated, or maybe just what it means hasn't been defined enough. Okay. I was in an accountability group for seven years with a bunch of amazing guys. They were all leaders in their churches, all dynamic Christians in, in their own fields. Uh, all were involved in different things. Yeah. None of them were pastors. I was the only pastor in the group. Okay. And we asked hard questions. I mean, hard, yeah. in-your-face questions yeah. every single week. We met every week early in the morning. And we asked questions about sexuality, questions about pornography, questions about have you been faithful to your wife, questions about money and stewarding money. I mean, we it was raw. It was brutal. Yeah. And one of the guys in the group, dear brother, respected brother, had an affair, an ongoing affair, while that accountability group was going on. Did he share that with the group? Or? He eventually came to our knowledge and yeah. so on and so forth, and we worked through that with him and he stopped the affair, etc. My point is, if you want to be unfaithful to your spouse, if you want to disobey God, if you want to drift away, you're going to find a way. Oh, yeah. You're going you're gonna to find a way to do it. And even if you've got accountability structures in place, uh, you're going to find a way to get around that and yeah. lie your way through it. Yeah, okay. I hear what so you're saying. So what I, what I think we need 
more of. This is what the kind of accountability I'd love to see more of. Okay. We need to be willing to ask each other questions and kind of give a loving challenge to each other, even when we're seeing little attitudes. So, some of the big stories that have made national news on the podcast and all that. Yeah. That they weren't about adultery. They, they didn't even involve adultery, some of them. Yeah. They were about pride yes. and attitudes and things we consider a little more subtle and tone and reaming people out and not being challenged about that at all. Yeah, don't you think if that, there was a, a... Sorry, I interrupted yeah. you. So uh, what I would want to see yeah. is not just kind of a watchdog group in your life of, mm. of brothers that are going with those hard questions. Have you looked at pornography this week? Have you been unfaithful? Oh, those are good questions. Keep them coming. Yeah, yeah we, need, we need those. Yeah. But it needs to be more subtle than that. Hey, man, I just, I'm, I'm looking in the mirror here now as I bring this up, but dude, tell me what, tell me if I'm wrong on this. I'm sensing what I'm hearing in the words you just said is you're pretty full of yourself. Where's the people that are willing to do that? And we need to have people in our lives that we're willing to allow to do that without getting all defensive and going off on them. That's a hard That's thing. That's the level of accountability yeah. that we, I believe, really need. And that's, that's the one that we can't squirm out of or get around to quite as much. I hope that makes sense. It does. But I've, I've thought a lot through the years about this accountability, especially after that experience. Yeah. And that isn't the only one, by the way. Yeah. Most accountability groups I've been aware of have usually had one or more members that had major moral catastrophes while they were going on. Well, so it's, it's not how to get more subtle. It's not that an accountability is going to prevent you from having a moral failure. If you are going to, if you, as you said, if you want to commit adultery, you can do that, you know, yeah. regardless if you're involved in, in, in a group or not. What I'm getting at though is, is and what I'm curious of um, are, what can a church put in place uh, like, to try to ensure that you don't have a single person of power that is able to take a church to that extent? Do you follow? Yeah, it's, I, love the, I love the question. Yeah. Here, here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the balancing act. Yeah. Um, Leaders need to be able to exercise appropriate authority. Yes. Underline the word appropriate authority three times. Yeah. Or else they become very, very frustrated in their leadership. Yeah. Okay. But they also need to have systems in place of checks and balances so that some of these major national stories we've heard about can't happen. Or they get caught early on. They would get checked early on with the check and balance system go dude you're being an egomaniac right now yeah i'm sorry no we're kiboshing this project and so when grace started uh i intentionally intentionally invited men to be over me with the ability to fire me ah so that i wouldn't even have the potential to become an autocrat, a dictatorial pastor, yeah. a leader who just said my way or the highway. Yeah. Now, does that 
fill me with fear and trembling? You bet it does. I mean, for almost 30 years now, I have intentionally invited, and the group of elders has changed through the years, of course. Yeah. Uh, I've intentionally invited people that I invited and put over me. Mm. Imagine how weird that is. Nobody in real, like a business would do that. No. They would go, are you crazy? Do you no. think I'm mental? Of course I'm not gonna do that. That would be like Elon Musk giving somebody the power to fire him. Exactly. Yeah. Go, wait a minute, I've got this particular call in my life. I have a certain level of expertise. And I'm going to put people over me who can just kibosh everything I think God wants me to do. Do you see how crazy that sounds? Yeah, it sounds crazy, but I think it's critical. I think it's a critical element that needs to exist in, in these independent churches. It helps foster humility. Yeah. It helps. Notice I didn't say it ensures humility. It, yes. It helps foster humility. It helps foster patience. It helps foster the fruit of the Spirit. Doesn't ensure any of it but it helps foster it because you have to get along. Yeah. Kind of like a marriage. <laughs> yeah. You have to get along and the rough edges get polished off and that kind of thing. It doesn't ensure a nice harmony. No. I mean, my goodness, not at all. But you, there are so many things I have wanted to do through the years that I got shot down. Okay. And I went out of the meeting frustrated even at times fuming inside. Yeah. That's okay. God sees that. So you've put into place at Grace from the very beginning of the foundation of it, a system of accountability uh, to yeah. make sure you had um, people that had oversight over you just in case. And to, to, to come back to it, um, in the business world, the repercussions of an egomaniac might actually be good business. You know, if you, yeah. if you look at it on those people who just that have that humongous drive, the repercussions in the church, well, that's huge. That's souls. The repercussions of that. Now, I agree. One thing that I do have to say is, is that the, the question somehow implied that something could have been done to solve these situations and, and ensure that never again will you see a person in uh, a position of authority falling, well, failing. Here's See, in a best-case scenario, in a best-case scenario, you have a leader who is truly called, truly gifted, yeah. with genuine God-given leadership abilities and vision, and you have board members and fellow leaders around that leader who uh, are godly, humble, like the leader is, and together you carve out the way forward. That's the ideal scenario okay it sounds and, perfect and there's a little bit of give and take yeah and the leader may get certain things shot down at times but but let me tell you what has happened with 90 something percent of the churches that i've ever seen yeah across america yeah i'm just giving it to you raw and real here it? it is not a dictatorial leader doing his own thing that is not the reality we okay. we hear the we hear the wild crazy stories where it really went bad yeah you know we hear those where it became a cult or where the church imploded because the leader had a moral failure and, and all that stuff. The majority of churches in America are a little bit too congregational in the way they operate. And that's why they don't get a lot done. What do you mean? That's just a fact. 
they have business meetings where they talk about just about everything and they end up bickering, fighting, talking about trivia. Leaders cannot lead in that system. Yeah. They cannot lead. They're hamstrung. Yeah. And so there's too much red tape and bureaucracy for the leader to actually get anywhere and be able to move the community forward to a better place. That's the reality. Yeah. But we don't, we don't hear about that. Only pastors hear about that. Uh, that's only shared between Pat, oh, I was at this last church and you yeah. won't believe what the board did. All I wanted to do was have an evangelistic outreach to try to reach some people from Jesus and they shot it down. They said, what do you mean? They, we're gonna have new people coming in here. We can't have that. What do you mean? Look, we, we'd have to do a building program if we did that. We don't want to do a building program. That's the reality in the average church. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's not the egomaniac doing his own thing. The average pastor spends his days dealing with that, banging his head against naysayers and people who have no vision, who are kind of stuck spiritually, who aren't necessarily growing a lot. That, I'm just keeping it real here. That, yeah. that is the average church around America. That's gotta be and that's why the average church doesn't get very far. So you need to have a balance between a leader that has uh, an autocracy where he's able to just do whatever he wants uh, and uh, stagnation by committee. Absolutely. It's gotta be somewhere well in, in well between said. there. And, and the best ones, the healthiest churches, are where you strike that good hybrid, yeah. where the leader is able to lead and actually uh, exercise good leadership and not just be kiboshed by naysayers and committees and bureaucracy and red tape, yeah. uh, but has enough checks and balances in place that he can't just follow every wild dream, which yeah. might, have, might, might not be God. It was the pepperoni from last <laughs> night, you know? I yeah. think Lexi is telling us that we need to wrap up. <laughs> Rex, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you, Dave. Thank you for what you're doing, brother. I believe God is going to use this to really, really speak to a lot of people. I hope so. I hope so. Will you join me and uh, let me pray for you as well as for uh, Grace Fellowship? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, those watching, please join us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Rex Keener and for his story and from uh, the young age that you um, joined him in his life for the call that you have clearly given him. Lord, I pray that you will continue to use Rex, that as we spoke about, that you will continue to work in his life as he strives to become more Christ-like. Lord, bless him and also, Lord, surround his church, protect his church, and Lord, I pray that you will bring him people who are hungry for the gospel. Lord, I pray that he will be what we spoke about in being that example and lead others and that through his church, you will use him and use his church to reach your people. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for the friendship that we have and for the time that we have. Thank you, Lord. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Awesome, brother. Thanks.